We are in a series through the Acts of the Apostles, the New Testament book that goes by that name. Our title uh, for the series is Turning the World Upside Down. Our title for the sermon this morning is Turning the Sanhedrin Upside Down. And so uh, would you stand with me and let's read our scripture together. Uh, <clears throat> it's on page 877 if you have one of our Bibles. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews... He unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, as you'll recall, if you've been with us, uh, we left off last week with the Apostle Paul in Roman custody in the Antonia Fortress. I wanted to show you um, what that looked like. The Antonia Fortress is on the upper right. That's the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. Uh, we're not sure it looked exactly that way. It's kind of an artist's rendering based on uh, the writings of the, the Jewish historian Josephus. But we know that it was there, and uh, it housed the Roman uh, cohort uh, there in Jerusalem. So that's that's where we are. You see the Gentiles' courtyard. We talked about that last week. And then you see close to the, the interior, um, actually on your on your on the graphic south gates and north gates. You see that little line kind of around the uh, the main temple uh, courts. That's that little wall that we were talking about last week that divided the court of the Gentiles from the inner courts of the Jews. So Paul had been rescued 
by the the Roman tribune and his soldiers uh, from an angry mob of Jews in the temple courts uh, who wanted to kill him. The reason for the, the Jews' anger was twofold that day. First, they had heard falsely that Paul was teaching Jews who were dispersed uh, among the nations, among the Gentiles, that that they should abandon the law of Moses, that they should uh, abandon circumcision, that they should uh, disregard the temple. And, and then secondly, because he had been seen in the city in the company of his Gentile friend, Trophimus, they presumed, again falsely, that Paul had defiled the temple by bringing a Gentile not just into the temple courts, but into the inner courts where only Jews were allowed. As the Roman tribune was was rescuing him from the mob by arresting him and taking him into the barracks in the Antonia Fortress, again, that northwest corner, uh, Paul requested permission to address the people, and having been granted that request, Paul proceeded to tell his life story, beginning with his earlier life and his pedigree as a Jew, and a Pharisee, and and then his career as a persecutor of the church. He told them of his encounter with the risen, glorified Jesus of Nazareth as he was on his way to Damascus to arrest even more Christ followers, and the radical call of God to serve him by going to the Gentiles with the message of the resurrected Lord Jesus, the Messiah. And it was when they heard Paul articulate the idea that the God of Israel would ever include the Gentiles in his family, that they again erupted in violence and again tried to kill him or at least do him harm. And again, Paul had to be rescued from the Jews by the Roman cohorts, sincerely wanting to understand then why the Jews were so stirred up against Paul. The Roman tribune uh, ordered that Paul be flogged. And remember, the, the Roman tribune was not an Italian newspaper. It it was the uh, he was the commander of uh, of all of the Roman cohort there in the city of Jerusalem. Flogging is one of the most um, cruel, one of the most deadly forms of torture uh, ever invented, uh, and 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 the Roman Tribune's intent in having him flogged was to get Paul to talk and to extract the truth from him. As the centurion who was assigned to the flogging was about to begin that grim task, uh, Paul asked a stopper of a question. He simply asked, is it legal for you to do this to a Roman citizen? At which point the the shocked and shaken centurion stopped immediately, reported this fact to the tribune who came personally and asked Paul, if he was, in fact, a Roman citizen. Paul revealed to him that he was, in fact, a citizen by birth, uh, a profoundly noteworthy distinction. So the tribune, like the centurion, and like the authorities in Philippi earlier, you might remember that story, was terrified at what he had done, that is, binding a Roman citizen, putting him in chains, and also what he was about to do. Uh, flogging him, the, the penalties for binding and doing harm to a Roman citizen without a trial, without a guilty verdict, were severe. In fact, both the centurion and the tribune could have been subjected to flogging themselves or even uh, forfeited their own lives, or, or maybe both. 
So as we pick up the story this morning, it's the next day in Jerusalem. And we're met first with the tribune's concern. Again, if you have uh, one of the black Bibles uh, that we hand out, um, this is on page 877. Uh, by the way, if, if if you don't have a Bible and, and would like to take one home, that's our gift to you. So the tribune's concern, 22 verse 30, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. So as the commander of the Roman cohort there in Jerusalem, the tribune, whose name was Claudius Lysias, was charged with with three basic responsibilities that, that really underscored all of his others, all of his other responsibilities. First and foremost, he was to keep the Pax Romana, the, the peace that the Romans expected to be maintained in every part, every square inch of the empire. Hence his swift action to quell the the, the riot that, that had broken out on the Temple Mount the day before. Secondly, he was responsible to administer justice. And third, he was to protect the lives and the well-being of all the Roman citizens in his jurisdiction. In the case of the disturbance on the Temple Mount, Claudius Lysias had a need to know. As a Roman military commander, he did not have authority to preside over or even to participate in the Sanhedrin's deliberations. And by the way, the Sanhedrin is the Jewish ruling council. But Lysias did have the authority to order them to meet in order to determine the cause of the riot and what were the actual accusations against Paul. And as an aside, it's interesting to think that, that many of the men who were members of this version of the Sanhedrin had also participated in the interrogations of Jesus and of Peter and John. Some of the men in the room may have been among those who many years before had given written permission to Paul to harass and persecute the followers of Jesus. So Paul is brought down from the fortress Antonia and into the chambers of the Sanhedrin. Let's see, are they shown there? Um, no, <laughs> uh, but right about number eight there, um, the chamber of the Nazarites, right? Maybe right behind that. What does it say for number six? Chamber of oils. Yeah, I don't know. Some, so, somewhere right in there were, were the courts of the Sanhedrin. So he's brought down from the fortress Antonia. He's brought into the chambers of the Sanhedrin where he's seated then to face the Jewish Supreme Council. Luke's account of, of the hearing is brief because this too devolves into another violent confrontation. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. 
Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Well, Paul's apparently uh, the first to speak. Uh, he looks them in the eye. He states his case. Pay, pay attention to what he says. He, he addresses them as brothers. They are indeed his brothers as men of Israel, as fellow Jews. With some of them, I suppose he had experienced a unique brotherhood by virtue of his membership in the sect of the Pharisees. He had, he had probably enjoyed a close brotherly relationship with some of them at an earlier time in their lives. They had been, some of them had been his friends. And he continues by, by making a clear and simple assertion. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this very day. Pretty straightforward. Pretty strong. He isn't claiming perfection. Paul understood himself as a sinner desperately in need of a savior just like you and I are. What I think he's claiming is that simply the general course of his life as a Jew and as a Pharisee has been lived conscientiously before God with at least a desire, flaming desire, to, to honor him by keeping his law. <clears throat> and that confession seems to have aroused the wrath of Ananias, the high priest, who then ordered those standing close to Paul to punch him in the mouth. <clears throat> who was this man, Ananias? History records that he served as high priest from A.D. 47 to 59. He, he, he had close ties to Rome. He had a colorful history of violence. Uh, the Jewish first century historian Josephus used words like brutal, scheming, and unsavory to describe Ananias. Uh, he added that he was a great hoarder of money who even took away by violence the tithes that belonged to the priests. Nice guy, Ananias. Uh, we should ask why Ananias was so enraged at Paul's words that he ordered him to be struck on the mouth. Remember, this is a court proceeding. So was it a point of order? Should Paul have waited to speak until he was spoken to? Probably not. Uh, was Ananias offended, given that he understood that, that anyone who claimed to have lived his life with a consistently clear conscience was a blatant liar? Again, probably not. Was he put off by a defendant blurting out a plea of not guilty? No. He'd probably heard that on many occasions. So, so what was the deal? I think it was this, that, that Ananias heard Paul's words as a claim that though he was now a follower of that crucified heretic Jesus of Nazareth, he was still a faithful Jew, having served God with a good conscience all of his life to that very day. And I think that must have seemed to Ananias the height of insolence, of arrogance, even blasphemy. Ananias would have viewed those two identities as Christian and Jew as mutually incompatible. So he gave the command. And this raises another question for me because verse 2 says that he commanded those, plural, who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So was he hit by more than one person? Did, did several people line up to have a go at him? It's possible. And that action, in turn, 
elicited a harsh and immediate comeback from Paul. Verse 3, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law? You order me to be struck? Now, before we decide whether we think it was right for Paul to have reacted the way that he did, let's examine what he actually said. First, he said, God is going to strike you. So again, was it simply an emotional backlash? Was it a threat? Or was Paul speaking prophetically? More on that in a moment. Next, Paul called Ananias a whitewashed wall. <laughs> what was he saying? Well, in the first century, to whitewash a wall or, or anything else was to cover it with lime or plaster in order to hide imperfections. That expression is still used metaphorically today, isn't it? Uh, to whitewash something is to cover it up. Put a nice face on a situation in order to give observers a, a positive impression, although it's maybe a false impression. <clears throat> maybe it's because the expression is still an actively used one that the most Bible translations and even paraphrases retain it. It hasn't lost its cultural significance. But a few translations employed have employed alternate expressions. In one, Paul calls him simply a dirty wall painted white. That kind of, that kind of says it, doesn't it? You dirty wall painted white. In another, Paul says to Ananias, God will slap you, you pretender. In another, Paul calls him a hypocrite, and yet, in yet another, he calls him a corrupt hypocrite. So, so in each of those, each, each translation, each paraphrase, the idea is of that, that Paul is accusing Ananias of being a phony, a pretender, who advocates one thing but actively lives another. We, we know that story. In this case, it, it describes someone who conceals malice under an outward image of spirituality or religiosity. Another use for a whitewash in those days that you're probably more familiar with was to paint the outside walls of tombs so that people passing by could see them and avoid accidental contact with them so that they would not be made ritually unclean. Jesus himself applied this sense of the word to the Jewish religious leaders. In Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Next, in the latter part of verse 3, Paul, Paul gives substance to his accusation. He says, are you sitting to, to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Deuteronomy 25, verses 1 to 2, is the pertinent passage here. It says that an accused defendant is innocent until proven guilty. You're familiar with that phrase? If there is a dispute between men and they come into court, and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. 
So clearly the, the high priest's command that Paul be struck on the mouth was both illegal, according to the law, and inappropriate to the, the distinction, the dignity of the high priest's office. Paul had neither been tried nor found guilty of a crime, nor had he even been charged with one. So now we can return to the question of whether Paul's sudden, harsh, verbal response was justified. What was First of all, was he speaking the truth? Yes, he was. Was his rebuke of Ananias consistent with the law of Moses? Again, yes, it was. Would we say that Paul lost his temper? Possibly. Possibly. At least momentarily. We remember that Jesus taught his disciples, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Paul himself had recently written regarding himself and his associates, when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. We should ask whether for Christ followers, it's an important question, whether for Christ followers enduring persecution in fact precludes assertive and even forceful language. After all, we we just saw that the Lord Jesus himself called the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites and whitewashed tombs. Paul's the one who, who taught us in Ephesians 4 that we should speak the truth in love and in so doing to grow up to maturity in Christ. So can our speech be at once both truthful and loving? Apparently so. Apparently so. Paul wrote to the believers in Colossae, chapter 4, verse 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What do you think? Can, can one's conversation be both assertive and gracious at the same time? And notice he says, seasoned with salt, not submerged in sugar. Are there circumstances in which grace may need to be served, served up with a bit more salt than sugar? Clearly so. Am I suggesting that Paul was perfect? No. That he never blew it? Nope. He, he didn't walk around with a gold halo around his head in spite of artistic renderings. He, he humbly acknowledged himself to be the chief of sinners. Which surprised me when I first read it because I thought that described me. When he was asked by a, a bystander, verses 4 and 5 then, would you revile God's high priest? Paul answered, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So he's quoting Exodus 22, verse 28. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. And notice that to curse or, or to speak evil of a ruler of the people is in, in this verse, in Exodus 22, 28, just a notch below reviling God himself. So here's admission on Paul's part that, that he was suddenly aware that he had crossed a red line. But it seems like more of a confession than an apology, doesn't it? 
And why? Because in his words, he did not know that this person who had ordered that he be punched in the mouth was in fact the high priest. Now for millennia, Bible students have been asking how on earth Paul could not have recognized the high priest. The traditional answer has always been centered on the fact that Paul's vision was compromised. Clues to this are also found in in his letters to the churches in Galatia and Corinth. Paul, Paul nearly always employed the services of an amanuensis uh, to whom he would dictate his letters. But he wrote to the Galatians, when he wrote the letter to the Galatians, he wrote it in his own hand. And in chapter 6, verse 11, he said, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Another clue is seen in, in chapter 4, uh, verses 13 to 15, where he reminds them, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Paul's bodily ailment in in Galatians 4 verse 13 may have been damage to his eyesight, possibly due to sickness or to injuries that he sustained while having been assaulted or, or stoned. Remember that it was in Galatia that he was first stoned. Many have logically speculated on this basis that the thorn in his flesh that Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 12.7, and from which he had three times asked the Lord to deliver him, was in fact his compromised vision. So it is credible to speculate that on that day in the court of the Sanhedrin, Paul simply didn't recognize Ananias uh, because he couldn't clearly see him. But other explanations have also been offered. For example, under Roman rule, high priests didn't serve for life, but they were replaced from time to time. Paul, having been out of country for an extended period, may not have been up to date on who currently held the office. It's also possible that the meeting was hastily called by the, the Roman tribune, the The text went out, the court assembled so that Ananias hadn't had the time or taken the time to put on his high priestly robes. Perhaps he wasn't sitting in his usual seat. There may have been no visual indicator for Paul that distinguished Ananias from the rest of the men on the council. So allow me to offer one more possible explanation that, that is admittedly a bit more cynical. I think it's possible that Paul may have been sarcastically suggesting that he didn't recognize in Ananias conduct befitting a high priest, in which he had said, in effect, by his actions I would not have known that he was the high priest. So in the end, Paul Paul offered not an apology, but only what we might call a, a mea culpa, and grounding his confession not in the character of Ananias, but in the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. You know, my dad always taught me that, that I would encounter on occasions in my life, uh, superiors whom I would have a hard time respecting. And, uh, my dad was a military man. And he said, in, in that case, in military parlance, if you can't salute the man, then salute the uniform. In other words, respect the office that he holds. And, 
And that, I think, is what we see Paul doing here. I said that I would come back to the question of whether Paul was speaking prophetically when he said to Ananias in verse 3, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. If it was a prophetic word, then the test of its veracity, of course, is whether it actually came to pass. So did God strike Ananias? Uh, and, And it seems so. Ananias was hated by the Jewish people. And despite all of his bribery, all of his political maneuverings, he lived his final days like an animal who was hunted. Um, At the end, he was trapped where he had been hiding in an aqueduct on the grounds of Herod's palace at Caesarea. He was assassinated along with his brother by his own people in A.D. 66. Well, what followed that day in, in the court of the Sanhedrin was even greater Conflict. It's just like that, those books my kids read when they were children, a series of unfortunate events. Acts 23, 6 to 8. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Now again, in order to understand what Paul was doing here, we need to understand understand something of the differences between these two sects that together comprised the Sanhedrin. Um, The Sadducees were the, the liberal, aristocratic party, a uh, majority of the priests in those days were chosen from among the Sadducees. Uh, if you, when you first read it, you said Sadduki. Uh, you're actually probably closer to the actual pronunciation of that word. Um, we don't know exactly where the word comes from, but uh, some people associate it with Zadok, the high priest, uh, back in, in Old Testament times. The Sadducees held only the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy as authoritative. It's not that they didn't give credence to the other books, but for them the Law of Moses was sufficient and authoritative. They also had the distinction of denying a bodily resurrection from the dead, which is why they were so sad, you see. They were essentially rationalists, anti-supernaturalists, as Luke points out in verse 8, No resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. Neither were they looking for the coming of a personal Messiah. In fact, in Matthew 22, 29, Jesus said of the Sadducees that they neither knew the Scriptures nor the power of God. The Pharisees, on the other hand, might be thought of as the conservative party. Um, The name Pharisee comes from a word that means to divide or separate. Pharisees were separatists. We might have called them Puritans. They they emphasized and took pride in their their purity, their intentional separation from sin. They they taught a much more conservative understanding of the law of Moses, and they held all of the books of the Hebrew Scriptures to be authoritative, and they believed in a resurrection from the dead. So Paul's standing among these men. He knows them. He knows their distinctiveness, uh, each of these parties. It, you know, it was into this volatile mix Then Paul cries out, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. 
It's with, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And what followed, Luke tells us, is, not surprisingly, dissension and division. So, so how are we to interpret Paul's tactics here? I've heard and, and read many uh, who say that Paul was simply kind of dropping a hand grenade uh, to divide the room and make his escape, which would make a lot of sense. Paul understood with clarity the issues that, that divided these guys, and he knew how to ignite that combustible tinder. It, it would certainly make sense on one level that Paul would leverage these things for his own purposes at the moment. But what we know of Paul is that he was always looking for a way to leverage his circumstances to create opportunities to proclaim the gospel. Now, is it possible that he's doing that very thing here? And I think the answer to that is yes. In any case, what what is clear is that Paul certainly exploited the disparity between the two parties by identifying himself as a Pharisee and the son of Pharisees and declaring that he stands trial with the respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Notice it's not the hope of the resurrection from the dead. That's not what he's saying. He says the hope and the resurrection of the dead. For the Pharisees, the hope, for all Judaism for that matter, the hope is the messianic hope of the coming Messiah. And he had come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is still the hope because he is coming again. The resurrection of the dead is is closely connected with Christ and and his coming. F.F. Bruce offers a paraphrase of the latter part of verse 6 that I think is really helpful. He, He put Paul's statement this way, the charge on which I am now being examined concerns the national hope, which depends for its fulfillment on the resurrection of the dead. Paul, as a Pharisee, agreed with the Pharisees that the Jews' national hope depended on a future resurrection. Here he's saying that that the first stage of that resurrection has been fulfilled with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. By the way, I think the the long-term fulfillment probably was what Ezekiel described as in, in his vision of the valley of dry bones and Israel standing up as a nation once again. But Paul brilliantly employed a strategy here that, that pointed to the heart of the gospel, which in fact, Paul would have said, was the fulfillment of Pharisaism. Paul would have said, I think, that a real Pharisee should inevitably have become a Christian. And I don't think we need to see Paul merely manipulating the Sanhedrin here to create division. That, that, that's an easy interpretation. I, I don't think it's the right one. It, and instead, and it's possible that, that Luke has, in this case, condensed Paul's words, it was seen that the phrase, the resurrection of the dead, points to, to the entirety of what the Bible teaches about resurrection, the whole biblical doctrine of resurrection that was now validated inescapably by the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. Well, at this point, conditions in the chambers escalated from conflict 
to contention. Verse 9, then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Yeah, forgive me, but it's hard for me to read verse 9. Then a great clamor arose without thinking of that line in the night before Christmas that says, when out on the lawn there arose such a clatter. (laughs) But, But that's my crazy mind. The word translated clamor in this case creates a uh, or carries a, a much different connotation. It, it actually indicates screaming, shrieking, even unearthly non-human kind of sounds. So that the sounds that were coming out of these men were animalistic. Some of the scribes of the Pharisees attempted to speak calm and, and reason into the proceedings, but it had escalated out of control. Claudius Lysias, afraid that Paul might actually be dismembered, was obliged to intervene. So the soldiers came down once again and rescued Paul and brought him into the fortress. How, how ironic is it that Paul is saved out of the hands of his own people by the power of Rome. Uh, The Israelites sought his destruction while the enemies of Israel protected him. What a commentary, really, on on Israel's moral depravity. Strange to realize that, that life and justice were sometimes more secure in the hands of an oppressive pagan government than under a corrupt, degenerate rule of the people of God. We're left to wonder what Claudius and the soldiers under his command must have thought of the religion of the Jews after witnessing such chaos, perhaps what the world today thinks when they see Christians in conflict with each other. Finally, in verse 11, courage, courage. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. It's not hard to imagine that Paul might have been dejected with that depression, with that discouragement, the violence of the past two days, especially the hostility of the Jews, must have made Paul wonder with some anxiety about what the future actually would hold. There must have seemed very little prospect of leaving Jerusalem alive, let alone a traveling on to Rome. But don't miss the intimacy and the power of what Luke describes for us here in verse 11. The Lord came and stood by Paul. In the New Testament, each of the three persons of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are individually described at some point as the parakletos, the the one who comes alongside to comfort and to encourage and to call us out, to call us forward. Jesus, again, gave Paul the gift of his personal presence. What does Jesus say? He doesn't say, Paul, don't worry, 
be happy. He sees, he understands Paul's emotional state. He speaks precisely what Paul needs most, which was courage. And not just self-generated bravado. It's not just buck up, Paul. Man up, Paul. It's not at all what Jesus said to him. You know, we know this, right? That the word of God is infused with divine power. When God speaks, things happen. When God speaks, he creates. So as Jesus spoke these words, take courage. I think a a, a warm, holy boldness was renewed within Paul and just began to radiate throughout his entire being. In other words, Jesus speaks courage into existence in Paul's mind and heart. And having renewed his courage, the Lord Jesus then stokes his hope. He says, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, as you have been faithful, even in these circumstances, so you must testify also in Rome. When I was a young man, it was there was this popular button that people would wear. And uh, I, can't read, I can't remember the letters. I'll just say it was all letters. It was an acronym. But it stood for, please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. I like that. Please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. And, and Jesus is saying that God is not done with you, Paul. That you have more to proclaim, more people with whom to share the gospel. Your dream of going to Rome is going to be fulfilled. And the new courage which the Spirit of God was now instilling in Paul would be essential for the crises and the opportunities that still awaited him. Well, quite a story, right? But how can we live in continuity with what we see and hear this morning in this passage from God's Word? All of the action in this passage pivots on three statements from Paul's mouth. First, his claim in verse 2, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Second, his rebuke of the high priest Ananias, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. And third, his declaration in verse 6, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. We have seen that each of these statements was true, that each one was stated with purposeful intent. So without going back and rehashing each one, consider with me one other observation. And that is that that each of them was substantially different from the others in tone. First was proactive. The second was reactive. And the third was prophetic. Not pathetic, but prophetic. Each of them, I think you'll agree, could be characterized as positively assertive. And I want us to think about that word assertive for just a few minutes. What is assertive speech? I heard a definition uh, years ago that I think is pretty accurate. Assertiveness is speaking the truth in love while maintaining healthy respect for others and for yourself. I would add into that, 
maintaining healthy respect for God, for others, and for yourself. The Bible, especially the wisdom books like Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, has a lot to say about the tongue, what comes out of one's mouth. Uh, And so let's think a little more about the matter of assertive speech, especially over against two other kinds of speech, which I'll just describe as aggressive speech and passive speech. Aggressive speech, passive speech. Assertiveness is neither aggression nor passivity. Neither is it passive-aggressive. The book of Proverbs has this to say about aggressive speech. I I love the Proverbs, don't you? Proverbs 18.6, A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. (laughs) There you go. Proverbs 12.18, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The books of wisdom don't actually have an awful lot to say as far as I can tell about passive speech, but but when passive speech is addressed, the focus is always on two themes, either lying or flattery or both in combination. For example, verse 20, uh, chapter 26, verse 28, a lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruins. Passive speech. We might say that, that lying and flattery may actually be aggressive speech in one context and passive in another. But in our text today, Paul models for us, I think, a healthy assertiveness in the words that he spoke. He spoke truth. He did so in love. He simultaneously maintained healthy respect for God, for others, for himself. And there are times when we as Christians, in an effort to be gracious or for fear of offending someone, fail to speak truth. And when we do that, we also fail to love. For fear of being perceived as too aggressive, we opt for passivity. And in those moments, we need to understand, I think, that an assertive expression of truth is what is most needed by all involved. As Job said, how forceful are upright words. Isn't that good? Job 6.25, how forceful are upright words. The words themselves, when they are upright, when they're truthful, when they're spoken with love and integrity, are all by themselves forceful and persuasive. David wrote in Psalm 37, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, his tongue speaks justice, the law of his God is in his heart, his steps do not slip. And his son Solomon wrote in Proverbs 16, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Proverbs 21.23 says, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. It's good. So before I close, let me just suggest this. I encourage you to think about your speech. Whether in your speech you are passive, avoiding the truth, avoiding possible offense, or you're aggressive that 
that you're really all about the offense? And who cares who's hurt? Uh, or, or whether uh, you might achieve an assertiveness in your speech. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all respects into him who is the head, even Christ. And so that means that our words matter. Our tongues need to be constrained by the Holy Spirit. So we ought to pray with David, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this weird but kind of amazing story and for the ways that you showed up to Paul, for Paul. And even showed up for the Sanhedrin as they heard words of truth spoken assertively from Paul's mouth. Lord, we do want to grow up. We want to grow up individually. We want to grow up as a church. We want to be a mature fellowship of believers. And so, Lord, would you work in us that truthfulness, that love, that assertiveness, that builds, that edifies, that strengthens. And Lord, let us not shrink back from speaking truth that needs to be spoken, but to allow you, Lord, to speak truth through us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.